so that people could hear how I said words. You know, they come <laughs> hey, here, Jody, come say listen it. to this guy talk. Cody Bradshaw, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, team. Global Head of Hotel Asset Management for Starwood Capital. Did I get that right? Uh, you got it right. Okay. Listen, I'm glad you're here because, in my opinion, you're a uh, character, one of the good personalities in our, in, in our industry. Uh, and we're doing a little work together today, too. So that's why we're becoming close friends. Uh, so tell me, though, I love your story. So I'm going to make you go through the whole thing, and then I'll pick your brand, and we'll talk about Starwood and what it's like working for Barry and the, and how the world's going to change. Uh, but help me, tell me, wh where are you today? I know where you are, but where are you? Well, that's the Ritz London behind me. I don't know if you can and tell with the glare that's going on because the sun is setting it around. Well, it's starting to set it. It's still early, but three three o'clock here in London. So I'm in our London, our new new London offices uh, next door to the new one hotel Mayfair. So you're in the office. You're not at home. You're in the office right now across the street from I'm the I'm in Ritz. the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, love it. How, how Remind me how long you've been in London. You've been there a while. I've been here for over 10 years. And I spent two years commuting between New York and Paris is uh, part of my Starwood story, which I can I can tell you. But I want to uh, hear it all. All right, let you know what? Let's start. Let's go from the from scratch, though. We got to hear. We got to learn who is Cody Bradshaw and how did he get here? So a young boy, Cody Bradshaw, growing up where? Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, that's right. Birthplace of Holiday Inn. A lot of hotel history. That's right. So, Kevin Wilson and all the others. That's it. That's it. So, so did you grow up uh, in the hotel business or no? It just happened to be in. No, not at all. So uh, as most people know, I'm six foot eight. And there was a time where I was pretty decent at basketball and could jump out of the gym. That goes way back to high school. I need and some. So, yeah. So basketball, Memphis is a big basketball town. I came from a big basketball family and uh, and I had decent grades. And so I was getting recruited by some some from pretty good schools. I didn't expect to, frankly, um, at a number of the Ivy League schools, including Cornell and and went on a visit there and sort of fell in love with the coach and the, the campus and all the waterfalls there. And but, you know, I wasn't like a super serious student, so I wasn't going to go into the engineering school or medical school. So the coach basically said, you should go check out this school called the hotel school. Uh, and they sent me a flyer on it and it, it listed all the different industries you could go into cruise ships, nightclubs, casinos, restaurants, bars, hotel, real estate, finance. And I was signed me up. So that's how I ended up in the hotel industry is pursuing what ended up being a failed career in basketball at Cornell only to, only to land in, in the hotel school. Um, Sadly, I, I think I slept through half my classes because at the time the coach made us do 6 a.m. practices every day. So not many college students are waking up at 5 a.m. trekking up live slope in Cornell through the snow uh, and starting your day off at 6 a.m. with a, a sprint back and forth 12 times on the court. And if everybody doesn't make it in time, the whole team has to do it again. So um, I'm digressing a bit, but. Um, that's how I ended up from Memphis to to uh, the hotel industry. I like it. You just described our hotel industry as the fun people with good personalities, but not the brightest. <laughs> yeah, well, they met. They came and visited me a home visit in Memphis, and I think my mother, with her southern hospitality, the Southern Belle, like brought out the tray of cookies, and you know, and they're like, oh, "You should go in the hotel school." So uh, that's it. That'd be a good fit for you. 
All right, I love it. So not so you didn't go to the NBA. We weren't a professional basketball player. We had to go to the hotel business. That's right. That's Who'd right. Get, yeah, get I figured that job? out fairly quickly upon arriving at Cornell. <laughs> <laughs> Where was your first job? Out of school, you went to work for who? Well, it's funny. I say my first hotel job. So again, I, I came back to Memphis my first summer after college. Yeah. And I said, um, well, I better get one of these summer internships that everybody seems to be getting. Uh, and I pulled out the old yellow pages, uh, which which uh, the younger generation may not have even heard of. And I went down the list of hotels in Memphis, and there on the list was this cool glass cylinder tower in, in Memphis called the Adams Mark Memphis, uh, owned and run by uh, the old industry name Fred Cummer. And I cold called the hotel, uh, said I'm a Cornell student, need a summer internship. And uh, next thing I know, I'm in the laundry room. With, I still have my Adams Mark name tag. I kept it all these years. Another story on that uh, later, uh, when, when I was part of buying the Adams Mark chain from Fred Cummer, um, uh, I pulled out my old laundry room name tag uh, to show him with pride. And so that was my first job uh, in hotels. And, and it was amazing because the one thing I am uh, growing up in Tennessee, I think just uh, got my first job when I was literally like eight or nine years old uh, in, in a horse stable and I've worked my whole life. Uh, and uh, so they loved me in the laundry room and they loved me in the graveyard shift. And so I, I never really got to work the fun departments. I was working kind of the hard manual, you know, back of house departments. And it gave me a real appreciation for the heart of the house. Um, I think you're the forward. first, I think you're the first laundry room attendant we've gotten. I mean, we've got the bellmen and the front desk clerks and we've gotten the graveyard shifts. I think you're the first laundry. Oh, the smell of that laundry room brings back a memory every time. And not, there's not many of them left in house laundries, but I yep. literally was in the machine and one person would hold one side of the sheet, I'd hold the other. We'd run it through the machine, go to the other side, fold it. Of course, all the, all the ladies were laughing at my folding skills because I'd never folded a sheet in my life. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, it just, uh, Honestly, it gives you a, a you know a little bit of I don't say credibility, but appreciation every time you tour a hotel yeah. of what the day to day you know life and and task is for for the line level workers. Um, and um, you know it's not an easy job operation, so uh, we can't get lost in kind of the more exciting, flashier side of the real estate side of the business uh, and, and lose sight of what really makes these these hotels run. Ah, uh, that's very well said. Good for you for pointing that out. All right, so keep going. Now we graduate, and then what? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll skip a few other internships I had, and then fast forward to I guess it's senior year and um, Hyatt Development, and this is old school Hyatt Development when there was about four people. Tiffany Ledbetter, Tiffany Ledbetter, Ledbetter Donato, as she goes by now, interviewed me in the Cornell Library, and she was friends with uh, a number of my friends in, in college. So um, I think that helped me get an invite to Chicago, where I met with Kevin Mallory, Barry Bloom, and Dale Moulton, who retired uh, many years ago at this point, but um, took the job as analyst at Hyatt Development. Nick Pritzker was running the group back in the day. So literally, there was like four of us. Jay Rosen was the other analyst um, who's worked on some amazing developments around the world. So there's two of us. And, you know, I have to credit Tiffany and, and Hyatt because the job letter said I have to start first week of June and I'd planned to travel in Europe like everybody did all summer. I said, you've got to be kidding me. Um, and had I not said yes to that, I don't think I would have gotten a job because that was June 2001. And, you know, a few months later, obviously, uh, the tragic events of 9-11 happened and, um, you know, Hyatt let, let go of a third of their 
corporate office employees. So like everybody around me was, I ended up with a 42nd floor, uh, like corner office overlooking Lake Michigan um, as like a 22 year old analyst. And um, so, so that was, that was my, my entry into the, the hotel industry and, and very grateful to this day for my still dear friends, uh, Tiffany, Kevin Mallory and, and Barry Bloom on, on giving me that, that chance to start my career there. I mean, again, it's a small industry. We keep saying that all those people you said still in it, uh, everybody's still circling around. So it's not what my father, grandfather, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah, so, yeah. All right, absolutely. so keep going. So then what, so we go from there to where to where? How do we end up at Starbucks? So with? then I got a phone call uh, to join Rob Klein and Maki Berra, who were starting a hotel investment group in San Francisco. And when I say start, I mean really start. So I was employee number one and went out there. Hey, let's move to California. Why not? You're 22, 23 years old. And we were subletting a few cubicles and one office for Rob in the corner of an accounting firm in downtown San Francisco. Day one of my job, Rob takes me to lunch and then he says, okay, let's go to Staples. And I just, it's one of these memories etched in your mind forever. Uh, pushing the shopping cart with Rob and we're buying pins and pads and staplers. Like we're literally, you know, sort of opening up, up shop. And, and, and then I had to set up email addresses and internet for us and all that sort of stuff. So, so that was, that was, and then of course the next thing I did the next week was buy a motorcycle and, and uh, not realizing, not even old enough to ask the question that we had not set up our health insurance yet. So I was uh, flying over the Golden Gate Bridge. I'm in new Kawasaki KLR650 while Rob and Maki were back in the office frantically trying to set up a health insurance program uh, for, for the, their only employee who didn't know <laughs> didn't know any better to, to ask about that. No, that he needed health insurance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so that was that. And uh, it was an amazing run. Uh, I mean, I, I just, I credit that experience with really building the foundation of skills uh, that I've you know, taken with me throughout my career. Uh, really um, granular approach to hotel investing and asset management uh, and um, being in the absolute trenches of finding value throughout the P&L contract negotiation. And so, yeah, we started with zero hotels and ended up growing a sizable portfolio and team around the U.S. And that was over a seven or eight year period. And, you know, they're, they're like family to me, um, Maki and, and her family and Rob and his family. So um, it was a wonderful experience. Then the GFC happened and obviously, you know, the whole world changed. And I ended up getting a call from... I guess it must have been directly from Tom Fisher. So John Bortz, uh, Ray Martz, and Tom Fisher had, had just uh, launched a blind pool uh, IPO of Pebble Brook Hotel Trust and were building their team. And I mean, it was a big story at the time, if you remember, yes. because everybody yes. else was down on their knees. I mean, pri yes. private equity was was crushed. Um, uh, and and so were the lenders uh, from from all those crazy loans that were originated back in the day. Uh, REIT share prices were down, and and yet here was the blind pool REIT. Irony being, the bankers that launched uh, Barry Sternlich's uh, blind pool mortgage REIT, Starwood Property Trust, which is now 
uh, one of the largest commercial real estate lenders in the U.S., and that blindfolded with a billion dollars uh, of capital to originate loans, they then went to John, pulled him out of retirement, said we could do the same for you. So it's it's a lot of kind of interesting, you know, connections there um, in terms of where I ultimately landed. So that that year, Pebblebrook was just you know, it it was so much fun is the only way to describe it. I mean, being that special moment in time where we were like the only game in town. Yeah. Um, private equity was 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 dead. Uh, the REITs, uh, their share prices were all hammered, and we were sitting on a fresh pile of initial uh, proceeds of three hundred million dollars with subline and ability to do secondary and all of that. And uh, we went on. We went about, you know, had our pick of the litter, sort of a shopping spree up and down. Uh, the top markets of the U.S. and everybody was calling us, and I mean, it was just the thrill of having four or five PSAs on your desk that you're negotiating at once for hotels you always dreamed of staying at or buying, you know, at a fantastic entry basis with almost no competition. Right. It was just it was just a, a really really unique moment in time. Uh, so. So that was that was my time at Pebblebrook, and yeah, that, that was, falls under that better lucky than it's timing. It's all about timing. It, everything's about timing. When you can raise a ton of money at the depths of the market, you can have a lot of fun. Yeah, and it was the, one of the hardest decisions in my career, honestly, um, to leave Pebblebrook after one year. Because by the way, we were still in the middle of a really epic buying spree. Uh, when I went to my interview at Starwood Capital. And I was quite nervous because um, they were kind of a preeminent group. And I had to be interviewed by like 10 people. But all the people in the hotel team came in the interview room and all they wanted to hear was, what's it like? What's it like at Pebblebrook? Because they were like in awe because, you know, there were no deals getting done and we were buying everything. And so that was kind of what my interview was block. like. Yeah. Yeah. So you imagine walking, you know, walking into Tom Fisher's office and, and telling him I've, I've decided to to go back to private equity. I was... I was literally shaking. Uh, I was heart heartbreaking. Uh, but again, lifelong career long friends. Uh, I saw John just the other week in in, in Nashville, and um, uh, he thought I'd grown, so he stood on a banquet chair to get up to my size, and we got a nice photo together uh, in, at that event uh, of John being about three foot taller than me, standing on a chair. So um, nothing but tremendous admiration for John, Ray, and Tom, and appreciation for the truly, you know, truly unique opportunity that they gave me there to be at the right place at the right time. So, You've worked for, with some really good people in this industry. Yeah, that's, that's you know, what I'm, in, you know, forever grateful for. And what's interesting is, you know, I, what I learned at Starwood with building teams is it's about getting the different skill sets and everybody's got a different perspective on things. And so you kind of you, 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 and that's credit to John Bortz, by the way, who was an absolute legend at hotel investing and asset management. When I came from charters and he knew how uh, the track record that Rob and, and Maki had built over there, he was he was so intellectually curious on learning you know, about the skill sets that I had developed there in our approach uh, to finding value in, in investing in asset management. And of course, I obviously learned a ton from him as well. 
But I never forget John, you know, obviously being an absolute industry legend, uh, was so genuinely interested in learning, you know, different ways of approaching uh, hotel asset management to, to unlock value uh, that I had been fortunate to, to learn from, from Rob and Maki. So I, I think it is about, you know, one of my mottos in this industry is we're all students in this game and it's constantly changing and never stop learning and always stay curious and never assume that you've got it and you know you, you you know it all because you can go from shop to shop and 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 from leader to leader and uh, be exposed uh to such a, a wide range of different skill sets and strategies so it's a, it's a unique industry from that perspective Good for you. That's great advice. I mean, I'm going to, we all know that, but I'm going to, I'm going to re-remember that. And it doesn't matter where you are in your career that you can always be learning from, from great people, surround yourself with great people up and down the food chain. Absolutely. All right. So we got to, so then we go to Starwood. I, I, I shouldn't ask why you went to Starwood, but <laughs> we got to Starwood and then what? So I remember the recruiter told me, you know, I always tell people, cause he'd been Kind of working for Barry for 20 years, John Peterson. Uh, and he said, I always tell people, you go to work for Barry and you'll see the world. Um, and so I was actually, it was kind of a tough move because I was yeah. in like the dream acquisitions job. Right. right. And I'd always done both acquisitions and asset management. And to be honest, I was always kind of wanting to make sure that I was considered to have both skill sets. And so I landed in this dream acquisitions job. And now I'm going to walk away from it back into an asset management job that I was just trying to kind of balance my, you know, balance my, my experience. Um, but I knew that, you know, a private equity group of, of Starwood scale and track record can just lead to so many things. So I was actually hired to oversee our, our uh, coming as the, the new head of our U.S. hotel asset management. Yeah. And uh, just like the recruiter said, that's exactly what happened. So that, that lasted about two weeks. Um, I set my little schedule to go tour our U.S. portfolio. I got as far as the Hyatt Regency Houston, uh, and I got a call from Barry's assistant uh, saying, Barry wants you to go to France. I said, okay. And so I had to stop my national tour of our U.S. portfolio, fly back to Greenwich, get a little debrief on what I needed to do, and then essentially parachuted into France, uh, where we owned 1,000 hotels across 30 countries, including 800 budget hotels that were suffering from uh, a declining market share and profit uh, as France was going through a double, a really nasty double dip recession. Uh, and um, and I found myself commuting from from New York to Paris for the next uh, 18 months. And small world story, uh, when I told Hyatt I was leaving, they said, well, can you stay like a month or so until we, you know, find replace us sure no problem they came back the next week and they said actually we need you to leave tomorrow because this new guy steve goldman is showing up and we don't want to introduce him to the analyst <laughs> that just quit okay so then you fast forward 10 years and what happens i'm parachuting into france during the middle of like an epic recession and there's steve goldman waiting to greet me <laughs> at, at uh, the the headquarter the 300 person headquarter and he was there the ceo of the whole conglomerate society de louvre we own Bacharach crystal uh, all these French luxury hotels, like the biggest names, the Creon Hotel de Louvre. Uh, at one point, we owned the, the Tattinger Champagne uh, Company. And so he was overseeing kind of the 
the uh, execution of the disposition of, of the various business components. And I was asked to come in with a few of my colleagues and try to try to sort of turn around the, the budget business. One of the things I have learned across the world, which I'll tell you, is you know the stereotypes of what it's like to do business in any of these foreign countries are largely false. And okay. the experiences that I've had in, in coming up with new ideas and new brands and solving complicated problems in, in countries like France and China, it makes me realize that uh, we, are all, we are all far more similar than we are different. And uh, so I would say some of my most memorable stories are working in new cultures and new environment with the most passionate, friendly, genuinely caring and smart individuals uh, that are working well into the night in places like France, where people think that, you know, that they they don't have much of a work ethic. I can tell you that's completely uh, a, a stereotype and and sort of you know, pulling off, uh, you know, the impossible or, or, or creating new ways to innovate the industry. So, so that was one in France is we, we, we sort of pulled off mission impossible and were able to kind of maintain positive EBITDA growth and restore market growth. And anyways, I could go on and on. It's got many stories on that, but it's a great memory. Uh, as, as my first, that's, that was kind of the, the path to, to Europe. So remind, how long you've been in Europe now? Well, between uh, the commuting to Paris every week for two years and the moving here, I've been here for almost 13 years. Yeah, 13. I was doing the math. 2010 to 23. Yeah. yeah. You like yeah. I mean, London's an amazing place. Yeah, it's, you know, they speak over, there's over 250 languages spoken in London, which I didn't even know there was 250 languages. But, you know, when people talk about kind of, they used to talk about New York as the melting pot. I mean, the, the, the one real melting pot in the world is London. And I, I view it as like an experiment of humanity, all these cultures and religions and, um, you know, different ethnic backgrounds living together and, and uh, pretty much in, in peace and harmony. I mean, we have our, our, our isolated incidents sometime like anywhere else in the world. But uh, I think that's what makes London special. It's really, really grown on me and I've raised my children here and and so um yeah you got a family like you stay in there like what's that look like what is the expat well, staying there I, I mean i've i've been here i mean i i've, right. I've had multiple kids here that have been raised here so right. <laughs> you know I, I guess the question i always get is when am i coming back um and my answer to that is uh i'm sort of same answer i, I give barry all the time which is i'm, I'm waiting to see court sort of where the next wave of deals you know happens uh, because I know Murphy's Law, as soon as I, I move back to the U.S., because Europe is a very platform-heavy market here. It's very different than the U.S. It's highly fragmented. It's underpenetrated by the major international brands. It's platform-heavy. So there's something like 30 billion of platforms that are expecting to kind of come to market again in this next cycle in Europe. And so, um, you know, who knows? I, I don't want to move back to the U.S. and then suddenly we, you know, take down some, you know, five billion dollar company in europe and then suddenly i'm commuting every every week again but uh i'm i'm you know i i love i love both countries i'm a dual citizen and um you know would be equally happy living living in either uh but right now i'm just kind of waiting to see where where the chips fall in terms of uh what i think is going to be an interesting wave of of opportunities it certainly feels like you know we're on the verge of starting a new cycle which 
frankly, a lot of us have kind of been waiting on since call it 2015. Uh, and uh, we, we didn't know it would take a pandemic to, to cause it, but here we are. Yeah, so let's dive into that. Let's dive into the economy and the future and work. Where do you think you're going to be spending all your time today? Well, the benefit of working at a place like Starwood Capital is one, you're surrounded by incredibly smart people that are in, in disciplines well outside of hospitality. And so credit to Barry. Uh, one thing that I think makes Starwood unique versus our private equity peers is we literally divide the world between hotels and non-hotels. And so we have a hotel team and then everybody else is sort of non-hotels. Uh, but we have very big uh, equity and, and credit businesses. And so what's always been fascinating about working here is we have the ability to opportunistically shift between asset classes um, and regions and points in the capital stack based on where we see the best risk reward. So unlike, I would say, prior experiences in my career prior to Starwood, where it can be a bit feast or famine sometimes, is you're, you're, there's either hotels to buy or there's not. You know, here it's like you're, you're in a little bit of a comfort zone. If, if it doesn't make sense to buy hotels now, if you don't like where we are in the cycle, et cetera, um, then there's plenty of other things to, to do to play in the space, in the hotel space. Um, there's undervalued securities. And so, you know, we have a, a special sits um, strategy that we set up to, to invest in undervalued securities. We're a major lender in, into hotels, both through our debt vehicles, as well as our opportunity funds. And so that can be whole loans or mes loans or, you know, participating loans, different structured deals. Um, but the way I would describe it is we have 120 billion assets under management. When I joined, it was only 20. So I definitely at this point kind of I never, you know, I don't know how it happened, but I've been here long enough where I'm kind of part of old school Starwood that's, uh, you know, now now a very different place. But of that 120, it's 50 billion is uh, equity investments uh, and um, 30 billion is um, core, core plus equity investments. And the other 30 billion is real estate debt. So you know, we have a number of different vehicles. So as we stand here now in, in, you know, at this point in the cycle, there are a number of markets where we have conviction in, like the market fundamentals are, are fantastic um, and, and, and we'll continue to invest in, in hotels um, with a strategy that's not, you know, we like to, 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 to find value at opportunities where you're not overly reliant on market growth or point in the cycle. Um, especially the case in Europe, because there's a lot of these platforms and there's many ways to add value and, and transform them, uh, kind of regardless of if market grows 1% or 3% over the next five years. In US, I think the, the kind of the winners are, are obvious. Um, we have, I was just in Nashville. We have a complex there, one hotel and embassy suites that we developed at Crescent. And uh, I think the f market fundamentals there are just phenomenal. I mean, every time I'm in that market, you look around. I was just hearing the new the Titans COO talk about their new domed stadium that's going to rival the one in Vegas. And it hadn't even dawned on me that, you know, they have this kind of old antiquated outdoor stadium and the new one's going to have a dome and therefore they can do like 50 major events a year. And because it's not weather dependent, the breakdown and, and setup timing is much faster. And so you can do like back-to-back -back events and then it puts you in the league to do the Super Bowl and Final Four and that sort of thing. Uh, and, um, and frankly, 
we're seeing, as we all know, which benefits hotels in this this point in the cycle is a slowdown in new supply. So in a number of these markets where that were kind of attracting a lot of investor interest, you're now seeing a number of those kind of projects on hold uh, due to the cost of financing, which I think further uh, enhances the kind of near medium medium term outlook. Yeah. Uh, new York City is another interesting market for us. Um, and a lot of these markets that haven't fully recovered from international tourism and have seen kind of a drop or a slowdown in new supply uh, and have been performing well despite the uh, delayed recovery of return to work and corporate demand and conventions and events. Um, but um, yeah. So. No, that's all, that's all very helpful. And I would agree with all those markets, but help me on sort of like, where you're spending your time or at least Starwood's vision. And I'm taught, thinking sort of more offense versus defense you, offense. We're going to buy stuff aggressively. We're trying to be opportunistic. Starwood can always raise capital and buy the defense seems to be where people are spending a lot of time today of trying to hold on to what they have, whether it's asset management, whether it's refinance, debt maturities, uh, pips, all those are big issues today. And everybody's sort of worried about, you know, uh, hunkering down and what's coming next so where do you think you guys are spending most of your time yeah i think everybody's doing their fair share of firefighting yep. um I, I you know the stat that i've i've used in in a number of our investor presentations which i take great pride in is we sold about eight billion dollars of hotels in the few years leading up to covid um because we sort of saw what was happening with the supply demand fundamentals uh and the sort of pent up uh, investor demand to deploy capital in a low interest rate environment. And so, uh, you know, one of the things that you, you wanted to ask me today is how I transitioned back from being in Europe, doing, uh, acquisitions, running the hotel team here on, on both the acquisitions and asset management to this new global role, um, which I agreed to do in January, 2020. Okay. Uh, not knowing that 90 days later, I'd be overseeing the closure of all of our global portfolio. Um, <laughs> But, um, you know, I, I'd say we're, we're in a kind of far better position than, you know, maybe others in terms yeah. of, again, back to the point I kind of started on, which maybe was a bit long winded is our ability to shift between asset classes and, and regions and in the capital stack. Um, so the, the, the hotel investments that we have today, we're quite happy with, and yeah, we've extended some loans and sold some assets and, uh, we're really happy with our our take private of ESA and that 5050 yep. JV with with Blackstone and and that sector obviously um, has a number of of tailwinds uh, and frankly the kind of infrastructure bill spending hasn't is really just starting to take off which I think is going to kind of benefit that that structure or that that segment. We agree. Um, and yeah, so so I so we're raising our we just uh, started fundraising of our our new thirteenth opportunity fund last week, uh, and so uh, yeah, so that will be um, you know targeting one of these you know big private equity fund targets of circa ten billion and and but there's no fixed allocation to hotels, so again we're not you know our team hasn't been given a mandate you know to go find two or three billion of hotels to acquire well what we see is the opportunity out there is what we think and we think you know there are cracks starting to appear uh in some of the particularly some of the sectors i mean hotels is the conundrum because it's been really you know outperforming particularly in kind of the 
leisure-oriented markets. I mean, the Euro European markets are flying uh, thanks to the Americans this past summer, because the previous summer, the Americans all stayed at home and vacationed, and this summer they all came here. And I think what we're now seeing is the the age of uh, the wave of Asian travelers. Uh, I was just at lunch with the GM of the one hotel Mayfair, and he was just saying he can't believe the number of uh, travelers he's getting from from China uh, and Singapore. Uh, and so I think that people are kind of hoping if you look at the breakdown of feeder markets from international tourism, that there are a number of markets uh, that are well below pre-COVID levels, and that may be the next thing that kind of props up these these markets. Um, so hotels are, are, if you want to like rank the top performing asset classes, it's data centers, which are, you know, I, I haven't become a student on this, but I think we are the fourth largest owner of data centers in the world. And, and these things are pretty phenomenal in terms of the undersupply of data centers to feed these tech titans and the, the, the you know, the, uh, the, the evolution in, in that space with AI and all of that sort of things and, and the need for, for more capacity. Uh, and hotels are, are, are right behind that uh, from a performance standpoint. Uh, but once you get beyond that into you know, more of the, the um, you know, multifamily and office and retail, then um, you know, you're, you're starting to see um, asset classes that were typically trading at uh, lower cap rates than hotels and therefore are more uh, susceptible to the increase in in interest rates and obviously the work from home phenomenon and the e-commerce phenomenon so i think we're we're expecting to see uh, a number of of distressed opportunities with undercapitalized assets and performing and non-performing loan pools and rescue capital of various forms i mentioned undervalued securities um, in the public space, both the U.S. and, and international, with a lot of the uh, REITs trading kind of well below NAV, um, we'll look for you know more of our traditional value-add projects, uh, you know, with within place cash flow and high growth markets, and then we'll we'll look at corporate situations. There's probably going to be a lot of activity in, in corporate situations and privatizations. Um, REITs are probably going to need to look to sell assets uh, to boost liquidity or to validate NAVs. Um, and, and I think there could be, you know, an increase in, in, in some corporate situations where the look-through underlying value of the real estate is mispriced, both in the you know, public and, and private sectors. So that's gonna be interesting. And then that kind of gets to what we're most excited about is the portfolio and platform creation, because that Starwood's kind of made a name for itself over the years and creating platforms uh, across these different asset classes and IPOs and things like that. So, so we're increasingly, um, increasingly excited about what 2024 brings in terms of you know these interest rates are kind of going to stay long enough, high long enough to to break some things, and cracks are are starting to appear. As I mentioned, in, in first the asset classes that kind of traded more, you know, uh, at a lower cap rate. I mean, there was one time multifamily in the U.S. was trading at like three and a quarter cap rate. You know, I mean, the wave of multifamily transactions that occurred uh, in recent years at call it three and a half cap rates. Um, you know cracks are already appearing there. Um, and so, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's going to be, uh, there's going to be a lot of, lot of activity. Uh, this is, this is a, 
kind of the quiet period and the brokers are, are all gearing up as you could probably attest to uh, to what's probably going to be an interesting 24 and beyond for all of us. Do you think there's going to be a lot of activity in 24? Is that what you're predicting? Uh, we may not be January 1st, 24, but you know, at, at some point it's, it, there's always a lag to these things because you got to wait on, on interest rate caps to, to expire and loans to mature uh, before the borrowers or lenders are in a position where, you know, they're sort of forced to, to act on, on that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you can, I think a lot of people have seen, I mean, there's over $2 trillion of commercial real estate loans that are maturing between now and 2026. And that's actually double the amount that was maturing in, in 07 to 2010. And so within that, uh, are going to be a lot of such a lot of opportunities to to recapitalize assets. I mean, there's going to be really good quality real estate, and that just needs to be recapitalized. And there's actually nothing wrong with the physical real estate, and which, you know, is 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 going to be a nice place to be in, where you're not buying sort of highly distressed assets that have been starved of capital for many years, you know, and you're stepping into, you know, uh, a lot of uh, development risk and, and that sort of thing. So that could make this this one quite interesting. Yeah, it's real interesting, right? The banks are actually sort of kind of healthy, right? The loans were actually good, right? Call it 65% LTVs. It's very low interest rate. It's just that that's not there today. So when you go to refinance, yeah. when your loan maturity shows up and you got to put new debt on, you can't, or it's a real issue. So the people with money who can step in and take over, they're going to be a lot of opportunity. I agree with you. You just got to have capital, right? You got to, if you're Starwood, you can raise another $10 billion, 10, 13th fund. You're, uh, you're in a good spot. Yeah, I think that's where the, 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 the bigger PEs are going to be at a distinct advantage. Um, I mean, I, I have worked, uh, I've been on the operating partner model and have, you know, I've experienced when uh, there is a major event or correction and, you know, you're at the mercy of your capital partner on that deal as to whether or not that they want to pay or they want to fund the working capital needs or they want to pay down the loan to buy more term. And um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of capital that that was attracted to this space that's uh, pension funds and sovereign wealth funds and hedge funds uh, that uh, are are not necessarily comfortable and worry about throwing good money after bad in a period of uncertainty. And these periods of uncertainty are really where where groups like Starwood shine. I mean, if you look back on our firm's 30-year history, the best deals, the kind of landmark deals that we're known for, all happened, you know, during this 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 period of uncertainty. I mean, when we when we had first mover advantage in the UK and in buying up these uh, these sort of bankrupt UK hotel platforms. You know, we went to IC on the first one. It was the first, it was like a bellwether transaction. No deals had gotten done after the GFC in the UK. And the day we went to IC, the papers in the UK and all capitals said, UK on the verge of double dip recession, you know? And like, it was the ultimate period of uncertainty. And you had to have real conviction, back to my earlier point, put all that noise aside, put the headlines aside and, and look at these as physical assets and 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 half operations and so they're living and breathing organisms and there are so many ways to take a property and reimagine it and to unlock value particularly in our industry where you know we've still got decades built up of sort of commodity products and brands that are increasingly irrelevant to today's consumer 
And so there's going to be opportunities to step in and take a property that's in a great location with great bones, but is entirely, you know, irrelevant to that market or to that consumer. We we brought Ace to London in Shoreditch and and had had bought a kind of a brand new hotel there. The developer went bust and and introduced Ace to to Shoreditch and and uh, the NOI tripled and it was it was just by you know making the the the, the concept. Uh, relevant shortage is like the hip coolest market in London, just so you know. So this, this was a branded hotel, a mainstream branded hotel. And then you kind of make it something that matches the local, the local DNA, the local consumers desires, and, and you can completely transform, you know, the operating performance and the asset value. So, so I think that's, you know, there's going to be a lot of those. I love it. Cody, this is great. And I'm trying to wrap up, but I got a ton more questions. I mean, I got one, you guys got to have distress in your shop. So what's that feel like? Two, what's it like working for Barry? Uh, and what are you learning? And then I'll give you my follow-up. What do you, what do you, I'll give you my final questions, but go, what do you, what, what distress are you guys working on in your shop? You got to have some, some, you're not immune to it. Um, I think on the hotel side, we have fared fairly well. Uh, we have some, so I would say the, the sub markets that's kind of secondary markets in America where you're dealing with more commodity products that kind of just, you know, go up, ride the markets up and down. Yep. Um, you know, those, those have, have, uh, struggled with, you know, they're not get, getting the same post COVID recovering demand that we're seeing in kind of the, the, the major markets and, and there's debt yield tests. And so we've, we've had to, as you've been working with us on, uh, selling some of uh, what I would call, we, we've now had to label kind of non-core properties within a yeah. portfolio. I think you're going to see that a lot of with the private equity would be my point. So I think where we have distress, it's solvable because maybe we have a portfolio of 15 hotels, but if we sell the bottom three or four, you know, as part of right-sizing the loan and buying another three years, and then then that's kind of that problem solved. And we believe in the assets that we're holding and have a plan for each one of them. Uh, so that would be kind of the, the distress within in the hotel world at Starwood. That's kind of the, the 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 max of what I'm dealing with right right now. Putting aside, there's a few markets obviously that are really being really being uh, impaired from uh, regulatory activity, union activity, uh, or or external events. I mean, we're sitting and watching New Orleans and hoping the salt water doesn't reach there. And maybe like, who could have thought that, right? So there's there's always kind of external factors like that. So that would be my point. And then, uh, I, you know, I won't cover the other asset classes other than to say that we were never long office buildings and, um, you know, but offices are, you know, you know, we're all kind of working through through that situation on a market by market loan, loan by loan basis. Um, but we're, we're, we're happy with our limited exposure in that sector, which is really the toughest one to solve. Listen, but but it sounds, uh, you know, you're more um, offensive than defense. You're more optimistic than pessimistic. And maybe that's just your personality. Maybe that's working for Starwood Capital, where you've got cash and capital to be able to go take advantage of the impending distress that's out there. Uh, and historically, you've done your best deals. A lot of people have done their best deals in the worst of times. So sounds like you're optimistic that we're going to get some things you guys are going to get. very large funds that we have and so yeah. you know if you've got some office 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 exposure that's dragging you down where you have some data exposure that you know is just you know looking like it could be a home run that will you know more than compensate for that and then you've got you know hotels that you can you know uh crystallize along the way 
um, based on market performance. So it's very much a fund level strategy, portfolio management, uh, risk assessment effort on our end. So, you know, I'm never working in a silo, just looking at hotels. Everything we do takes in consideration a broader fund strategy, which is is great because I'm not standing there with just a, a hotel that, you know, has has no other, you know, it's kind of a binary decision. All right. Well, I got to know, what is, what is it like to work for Barry Sterlick? I could describe him the way he describes himself as most people have either the right or the, the left brain that they work with or either creative or analytical. And I think he is sort of one of a kind that he is both. Uh, and I've never seen somebody who's an absolute titan in the real estate and finance industry. And yet if we have a, a hotel uh, renovation and a leading architect or interior designer walks in the room, they are in complete awe of Barry Stern, like sitting across the table. Uh, I had to accept a uh, industry icon award for him in the Interior Design Hall of Fame once in London in front of like 500 people. And that was, I was quite nervous giving that acceptance speech. But, you know, it's those type of moments that you, you really appreciate the uniqueness of the individual that you work for. And you got to bring your A game every day. I mean, this is like the NFL. This is a full contact sport because uh, Barry operates uh, at uh, a level of intensity and passion uh, and energy that's that's very hard to keep up with. Uh, and so um, I've got nothing but uh, uh, total respect, admiration and gratitude for for what he's done for me, because, as you said, I'm just a, 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 a boy from Memphis that ended up uh, seeing the world. Thanks to thanks to Barry Sternlich. Uh, so I think. Um, Maybe we're out of time, but you've I wanted to get that over, in. You've been there over a decade, right? And Barry is obviously one of the icons of the industry, and he is intense, all the things you hear. But, you know, arguably the, one of the best minds in our space ever. So uh, you picked a good mentor to follow. And we're a people industry, and you've worked for some of the best people. I think that's my wrap-up. So that probably makes you soon to be one of the best people in our industry. Well, I'm I'm not into self promotion, but I agree. I, I agreed to do this session one time. This is the only time I've done a session about me. So, uh, <laughs> but it's hey, been an. We want to know. No, we want to know. That's sort of my plug. But this is what this is about. We want to know the people in our industry. We're trying to personalize yeah. all this stuff. We're the hospitality industry. The reason you joined the business. Yeah, oh, you know, we're 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 the luckiest people in the world. I mean, the exactly. hospitality industry is the intersection of all the great things in life: history, architecture, food, culture, design, community. You name it; it all goes through hospitality. So we're we are very lucky to wake up every day and and come to work in this this amazing industry, and and it attracts, like you said, really great down to earth people. I love it, Cody. You're the best. Thank you for agreeing to do this. Come see us in Atlanta. Sounds good, team. <laughs> <laughs>